Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There's a term that has become dominant in foreign policy and international relations conversations right now. And the, the term is great power competition, right? It's everywhere, right? And it's based on the sort of obvious observation that you're starting to see more areas of competition between the United States and China and to a lesser extent, Russia, and that this seems like an important thing for international relations. Okay, but, but, but what actually is important about this. What does competition and great power competition even mean, right? And what does it mean for the future of the world if there is, in fact, a return to whatever this kind of competition is, or if it's a return to some kind of previous past at all in any meaningful sense? These are all questions that come up but aren't really answered in any depth in the public conversation surrounding the future of the world. So today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to talk about great power competition. We're going to try to understand what it means, what the implications for the world would be if there is, in fact, a rise of great power competition, and uh, whether or not any kind of workable foreign policy can be built around this idea, as the Trump administration in particular tried to, and it's unclear whether the Biden team will pick up this mantle. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we, uh, we've been wanting to talk about something like this for a really long time because we, uh, we often here on Worldly, we talk about something happening in the news and like, usually it's something horrible happening in the news. You all know your, your listeners at this point, you understand what the show is really about, but this is like a sort of bigger picture thing that we've been excited to talk about, uh, for a while. Uh, we were all very animated about it in our planning meeting on Wednesday. We have Wednesday planning meetings. We're just giving you a little, a little peek under the hood. As to how as to how the worldly is produced, um, but yes, yes, exactly. We're, we'll soon do a director's cut of worldly where we give you commentary on the commentary that we're offering, and it's going to be four hours long. Now we're just, we've just invented Lord of the Rings, um, the, the Peter <laughs> Jackson versions, Zack Snyder's cut of worldly. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no, we can we can form up with. So this is uh, this is um, Zach v. Alex Dawn. Of worldly, uh, <laughs> yes. featuring Jen, of course, and then we can have a podcast league with the weeds when we team up with them. Exactly. For another yes. thing. Oh my god, this is the nerdiest conversation that's ever happened. It really isn't, Jen. You've spent time with me. You know what I like to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. Doesn't make it not nerdy, however. <laughs> no, of course not. And if you said I was not nerdy, I would take it as an insult. <laughs> All right, Jen. Why don't we? Um, why don't we talk about great power competition? Let's do it. Like, first of all, what what does the term mean? And why is it all of a sudden everywhere in the way that people are talking about, you know, international relations? Yeah, I mean, it's especially in Washington, it's become this kind of, you know, 
catchphrase that is being used, uh, especially in the Pentagon, but State Department, uh, think tanks, you can't really throw a rock without hitting someone talking about great power competition. Also, please don't throw rocks at people. It's not nice. But um, but your question of what it actually means, uh, what is the definition, is kind of part of the problem uh, that a lot of people don't take the time to really define, you know, in a deep way what it's supposed to mean. But in a kind of general sense, it means, well, competition on the international stage between great powers. In particular, like you said, it's usually used to describe the kind of global sort of framework in international relations uh, through which U.S. policymaking is kind of being seen right now. And it's primarily used to talk about U.S. and China and, like you said, to some degree with Russia. The idea here is that, you know, there was the Cold War with the U.S. and the Soviet Union as kind of these two poles who were battling it out on the world stage. Um, when that ended, we kind of entered this fuzzy era of not really having any kind of cohesive framework to understand the world. There was a lot of talk about unipolarity, meaning one pole, meaning the United States being the dominant superpower. Then we had the war on terror as this kind of organizing framework after 9-11, where um, you know, the global war on terror and focus on counterterrorism, kind of you know smaller operations around the world. And it wasn't so much focused on this kind of broader grand strategy among you know world powers. Um, and so now we're back to this kind of idea of this great power competition between U.S. and China, with a rising China now coming to challenge the U.S. in all kinds of ways, militarily, economically, now diplomatically. And so that's kind of the framework that people are talking about, that this is the way that the world is organized now and that that's how U.S. foreign policy needs to be oriented. That's the argument, right, that we need to focus on things like our defense spending to make sure that we match and not even match, but that we, you know, maintain dominance over China's military. Things like d diplomatic efforts to make sure that China isn't, you know, expanding its influence all over the world and challenging the U.S., uh, you know, economic trade, kind of everything being put under this framework. That's the kind of general definition, I guess I would put it out there. Absolutely. And I guess I would add it is a bit more defined, I think, you're than at least you believe. And I totally get why you feel it's a nebulous concept, because it, it, it is a nebulous concept. But it is really clearly meant to say two things. One, the era of like small wars, right? The war on terror, as you said, Jen, is over. And it is meant to say that the entirety of the U.S. system, foreign policy apparatus, national security apparatus, is really geared towards two nations, China and Russia. And like where I, where I agree that there's even more, uh, you know, there's a lack of definition is like, OK, but then what? Right. So you say, you yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean. You're right. I, right. And, 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 and there we're in agreement. Like, I don't know what it actually implies other than, you know, China, Russia, bad. Now, I get it from like a messaging and political standpoint to, to call it this. Um, if you spend any time in, in Washington or, or covering this stuff, you'll find that very, people very much like little monikers and acronyms, and especially if you cover the Pentagon for a while. Um, <laughs> oh, God, the acronyms at the Pentagon. Oh, God. It's bad, right? Nightmares. Nightmares. 
but like when you're trying to get a, a sprawling government in line with like the thing you're trying to get them to, to, to get them to focus on something, you need a little pithy bumper sticker like this and great power competition works that way. It also works for just the regular voter who isn't paying attention to almost anything, um, understandably. But if they hear like, well, what are we doing about China or Russia or whatever? You hear great power competition. And even if you're not familiar with these topics, you get at least an idea in your head as to what all this means. So that matters, at least from a from a communication standpoint. But from the political standpoint, as we were alluding to, like, I, I don't know what it, it really implies other than, you know, fight China and Russia. And that's dangerous because especially when competition is the buzzword, it could lead to ruin. It could lead any leader or any, you know, government employee to think, oh, this means like fight at all costs. Like there's no real clear goal here and so you your the mind could run a bit wild and that's the danger i think of when you use pity things like this despite their the pros that i discussed the cons um are also quite bad yeah i think that's an important piece too but yeah right i think it's important to drill down on on the competition half and i want to come back to the great power half of the phrasing because right because competition can mean lots of different things and ultimately it depends on what you're competing over right like in its most obvious sense, great power competition refers to competition over security and balance of power, right? So who's stronger where and in what ways can you prevent your enemy from getting some kind of military foothold or territorial control or something like that? But honestly, that is not the biggest axis of conflict right now between the United States and either China or Russia. There are territorial concerns in Eastern Europe and in places like the South China Sea where uh, the sides are coming into conflict. There are concerns about balance of power with respect to you know the strength of the NATO alliance and China's increasing ability, arguably increasing ability to threaten Taiwan, depending on who you're talking to. But it, it strikes me that a lot of the the competition, like the places in which these countries are trying to vie for influence often happens in the political, diplomatic, and economic realms. So they're competing over things like 5G placements in different countries, like whose companies get to place 5G. They're competing over uh, trade linkages between uh, Germany and Russia, right? They're competing over which country looks the best after the the COVID-19 crisis with, with the United States and and. China blaming each other for the pandemic spread and Russia coming out with a vaccine and there being competition over whether or not Russia's vaccine is any good or not. Turns out it probably is. And these this is a different kind of competition than is normally conceptualized when people talk about great power competition, right? The phrase really, when you talk to IR scholars or you look at the literature, it most classically refers to like 19th century style multipolarity, which means lots of different powerful countries competing over influence. That often breaks down and turns into wars and conflicts over territory and over security. Um, and so the balance of power system that you had in mid-19th century Europe in particular is like the classic example of great power competition. So is um, European colonialism in Africa, right, with lots of different kinds of countries trying to scramble for control over different parcels of land in order to maximize their influence with respect to each other. But now... With war not looming in the immediate term, it it seems like a lot of this competition is happening in different spheres, which means you need to think about different objectives. Like, what is the point 
of competing over 5G? What is the point of the messaging war over COVID-19? And that's where I find a lot of the competition side conversation tends to break down. There's this sense that we are like, you're supposed to win a competition, right? You want to be better than the other side, but nobody is super clear on what ordinary people in the United States or the rest of the world gain from a U.S. win in something like the competition over over 5G and that, that that kind of thing, right? It's just often disconnected from broader strategic objectives and just set in terms of we have to win because we have to win. I mean, I think it's somewhat clear what those objectives are. It is, at least from the U.S. standpoint, if China runs technology, if it runs the economy, if it is the best at all these things, they write the rules of the world and we don't. Uh, and that doesn't make a lot of American policymakers feel good um, and a lot of our allies feel good, right? They've enjoyed a U.S. underwritten global system since 1945-ish. So like the notion that you're going to now have an autocratic country be in charge of the things that let our cell phones run and our computers run and uh, and global economic rules and 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 the future technologies uh, uh, that we'll all be using like that just you know that just doesn't sound good and it, it doesn't make people feel good and they worry that the world will be in a worse place if that were to happen and that i think is if we you know dig really beneath the surface of what great power competition is, this is if we don't push back on China and Russia and make sure that America doesn't stay number one, the world's going to hell. And like that's really the messaging here it, in every sphere, right? And so this is why you see people say, well, what this really is is a new Cold War with China, and we'll mention Russia in a bit. Um, I have my very big disagreements with that for, for no other reason than like China's integrated into the global economy way more than the Soviet Union was. Um, but that... I think is is the issue. And so great power competition is meant to imply like this is a moment where the U.S. needs to stand up and 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 defend itself and stay the, the number one power and make changes to outcompete Russia and China in multiple facets. Otherwise, there will be a new world, uh, a new global order, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, though, the problem is that it and I, and I get your point there. Um, but if we're coming down to like, because it makes people feel bad <laughs> that, that the other country is going to be in charge, like that's not particularly useful in terms of like, oh, well, we don't want someone in Washington to feel bad. Um, and I know what you're getting at. I know you're, that, that's the simplification. I, I understand that, Alex. Don't worry. But I think the, the issue here, though, when you actually look at it, is that we're kind of mixing together. And by we, I mean, like this conversation and the broader conversation about great power competition you're mixing together a bunch of different kind of goals in a really blurry way, right? So when you, again, just taking 5G, so is it an economic concern, meaning that you don't want China to dominate the market for a big, powerful, you know, internet technological infrastructure project around the world? Yes, that's part of it. But part of it also, the argument that the United States and the national security establishment has been making over and over is that this could give China a spying edge, an intelligence edge, um, a security edge by making them able to essentially listen in on these conversations that are happening over these networks and have access to technology, even if these networks are being used you know, in a military context, say, you know, uh, countries we have military alliances or relationships with, say, in the Middle East. Uh, if, you know, countries in the Gulf start using 5G technology to their for their military intelligence communications needs. Well, could they then listen in on their conversations with us, meaning China? Could they listen in on the conversations between, say, Saudi and the U.S. or et cetera? So then you have a security thing. Well, the, the other piece that you were talking about, Alex, seems 
a bit more of an ideological political thing, right? Do you want democratic countries to be the ones setting the the rules of the road or or autocratic countries? So you have ideology, you have security, you have economics kind of all mixed together and it's never really clear. And I think, you know, part of it is because those all are mixed together, right? It's all part of of this issue. And I think that gets back to something that I want us to talk about, you know, in a bit, which is the power side of this, which is on what axes are we you know, measuring these sort of things. So is it economic? Is it military? Is it ideological? When you talk about the Cold War, you know, it was very military focused, obviously, with nuclear weapons in particular, but also, you know, military influence around the world, but also, obviously, ideological, right? It was capitalism versus communism was kind of the ostensibly with the defining kind of framework there, right? The reason we were, as the United States was getting engaged in, you know, these small conflicts around the world was to stop the spread of communism. But that's ideological, but it's also economic, right? So you have all of these things mixed together, which I think makes it difficult to pinpoint one specific element and one specific goal. Right. I, like, I, I find it in these conversations kind of helpful to sometimes take a hardline position that I don't agree with and then explain why I don't agree with it. So that I think is or at least a sort of a clarifying exercise when I was thinking about this. So like the hardline position would be something like, why does the United States or why should the United States care that China is gaining significant influence in places like sub-Saharan Africa or Europe, right? You know, it's not our business, not our people, not our place. Like, why is that a problem at all, right? And, you know, there's a certain logic to that, right? But what I what I find clarifying about thinking about that view, uh, which is, you know, uh, a view that you hear advanced in certain places in a more nuanced way in places like uh, like Cato, which is the libertarian think tank that has a pretty significant investment in foreign policy, is that it, it helps me understand that like why this matters to me, and I'm not ascribing this view to anybody else, literally just just my own, is that this this stuff that Alex was talking about, rules of the game, affects the lives of billions of people. Right? The way that international institutions and the the sort of understood parameters through which states operate, the formal and informal rules of international politics, ranging from the way trade agreements are set to like when you feel like you can get away with attacking another country or mistreating your own population, have been set in a particular way uh, in varying different ways over the course of time and ones that relate very heavily to the balance of power. Since 1945 in the West, the United States has helped arrange a system that for reasons that are just like kind of baffling in hindsight, but really uh, sort of extraordinarily prescient that the U.S. sacrificed a lot of its own power and freedom of maneuvering in order to create a world in which other countries have a say and have an ability uh, not only to like influence what happens in the rest of the world, but move in, in a direction that I think is better for their own people, which is to say one towards a uh, mixed market economy and liberal democratic political system. The rules are set up in such a way that countries like that, with systems like that, do better on the whole than if they were the same country without those systems. One thing that China has done, which is why it's at the center of this conversation, is it has risen to a tremendous position of influence while openly eschewing and attempting to rewrite some of these rules because it has a kind of state capitalist authoritarian political system and it doesn't like the idea that it would have to reform in various different ways that would make it easier for that regime to be toppled by a kind of popular uprising or 
to even to have some kind of managed transition to democracy. So the concern is not just about people's feelings or feels. It's that China changes the rules to benefit itself, to enhance its own position and give it some more freedom to operate and less pressure to try to conform to rules that were written for a different kind of country. But in doing so, creates an international environment in which other countries and other leaders have incentives to move in more authoritarian directions. And I think that's bad because I care about what happens to people everywhere, not just okay. in the United States. But tie that back to your original question of your of your framing here, which was Africa. So like, why does it matter that China is expanding into Africa if you are if you are making that argument? The, the argument you set up to argue against. So what what is the argument that why you should stop China in Africa? Well, there's, again, I'm speaking just for myself, not for anybody else, but my own view is that there are, there are lots of countries that are in precarious political situations in sub-Saharan Africa, by which I mean they are in somewhere on the spectrum between consolidated authoritarian and consolidated democracy, and that international pressure can not immediately, like the U.S. can't just sanction a country and make it a democracy magically. It's not that simple. But the combined pressures of having to operate in an international system can push countries in one direction or the other towards freer political systems, away from abusing their political rivals and ethnic minorities and so on. And that matters because I care about the welfare of the people in those countries and a system in which the United States, for all its faults and for all of the horrible ways in which it has contravened its own stated principles, a system in which the U.S. is setting the rules is better on net than one in which China is setting the terms of the international arena. So I, again, think it's sort of ideological. It's not that anyone or many people outside of China are like, we really think the Chinese system is better than the U.S. one. It's that uh, it is creating room for people, individual leaders, who like the idea of consolidating their own power at the expense of a free political system to operate uh, and, and to do that, basically. So when I look at China and Africa and why people in the United States at places like Cato uh, or, you know, AEI, any other uh, lots of think tanks, right? I don't think that they're looking particularly at maybe I'm wrong, but at China and Africa and going, I'm worried about, you know, regime change or, no, you know, well, that's why I said I'm speaking just for myself. I'm unusually cosmopolitan. Right. What I'm saying is that, like, the argument of like the hardline position is is almost purely economic at that point. Right. In, you know, and China's interest in Africa is essentially purely economic in the sense of like making, you know, creating relationships, uh, you know, client relationships in which African states are clients of China, in which they get, you know, lots of money in the forms of loans that end up, you know, having them big time leveraged in debt to China, China coming in and building infrastructure projects, some of which the local economies and local communities don't even really want or need particularly. And, you know, often sending lots of Chinese workers abroad to these countries to build these projects to help ease, you know, economic pressure at home in China. Um, I think the argument there is is still, again, purely economic in terms of scramble for resources, you know, natural resources, mining, all kinds of things, the same kind of scramble you described, you know, in European colonialism. I think that is very much the, the issue in Africa. I don't think that when people look at that, it's ideological, you know, or, or particularly political. But I think... In, in parts of Asia, in China's more in traditional, what we call sphere of influence, I think it is, I think, a lot more potentially along the frame of what you were describing in terms of democracy versus 
authoritarianism in terms of you know trying to convince the world that the Chinese political and economic system is the right way to go, that democracy isn't necessary for economic growth and things like that. I think that's much more of a salient issue, I think, in the region um, than it is in Africa. But this is instructive, right? Even the, the African example, because when we're talking about great power competition and, and we all agree it is the, the, this moniker or this term means, OK, like the U.S. is trying to somehow compete with China in Africa. Does that mean, you know, like send a bunch of aid to countries to so they don't need as much economic help from China? Is it make them more reliant on the United States? Is it, you know, somehow build up infrastructure projects or like talk? So, you know, so again, China doesn't like really get in, like make, make the U.S. a more attractive business partner. Um, is it you know, talk to governments in, in on the continent and say, actually, you know, here's the intelligence we have about if China comes in, don't work with them. Like, what actually is the move? We don't know. And that extends to South America, that extends to Asia. Like, I still have to have no clarity, even in, in Asia. Like, is it, you know, get South Korea to agree with the United States that, you know, China as an economic partner is a bad idea? Because if so, that's not going too well. Same with Vietnam, same with Japan, same with a bunch of other countries. So, so this is the problem is that it's it's descriptive, but not prescriptive, right? We know, like, if I'm at the doctor and you say, okay, well, your arm is broken. Great. Now what? It's like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know what the cast, like, do I need a cast? I need uh, anesthesia. I need uh, instructions for how to shower. Like, I need a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and, and, <laughs> and this is the issue. Uh, so whether, it, whichever reason we're talking about, this is what worries me, is that we are, we have deluded ourselves into this notion of, okay, we're going to compete. Fine. And, and, and frankly, I'm glad we're at least in this space because the war on terror was was ridiculous and like a sort of an escape from from history. Um, I get why we did it, but it lasted too long. So we're here. We are. We're back in this space. We've decided that China and Russia are the bad guys. Great. But now what? And I'm not I haven't heard the Trump administration really deal with this other than let's just play some tariffs on China and 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 say nice things about Putin with my government doing stuff. And then Biden saying, yeah, well, we're going to be tough. Um but without really any discussion other than, well, if we build up at home, right, then if our economy is better than Russia's, we're going to be OK. Like, that's really all I'm getting here. And, and, and there's no real thinking beyond just, you know, fight. We're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we are going to continue talking about the exciting and confusing world of great power competition. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about uh, the very strange debate over great power competition as an organizing concept for international relations in the 21st century. Uh, this is happening in the halls of power in Washington and Beijing and Moscow. It, it really, you know, the buzzword we've been talking about has been prominent in D.C., but the, the concept is everywhere. And, you know, to date, we've been talking about it through this kind of D.C. foreign policy lens, which treats China and Russia as bad guys, uh, so to speak, or at least rivals. I have lots of questions about this, but one of the ones that's sort of been rolling around in my head is when we talk about great power competition, why do we assume that it is limited to those three countries, right? There are at least two other obvious candidates 
for great power roles in the 21st century based on demographics, economic fundamentals, military power, etc. And to my mind, we haven't been talking about Europe in, in the sense of the European Union as a kind of unitary actor or India. And those two are hugely significant when we're talking about these things. So Jen, Alex, uh, I don't know if either of you have thoughts as to why they get left out a lot, but it really seems like reducing this to U.S., Russia, China with everybody else is kind of like reacting to those three seems like a, a, a mistaken way of analyzing what's happening in the world. Yeah. So I think this goes back to the issue that I wanted us to get into, which is we've been talking about the competition piece of the phrase. And I think we should talk about the the first part, power and great power. What does that mean? And how are we defining power? And I think, again, that's where a lot of this concept breaks down. And I think the concept is essentially in some ways being kind of retrofitted to just explain U.S. and China. And Russia gets kind of thrown in there because uh, lots of reasons. But like, how are we defining power? And for example, if we're defining it just by economics, right, just pick that that axis. It makes no sense for Russia to be above any other, you know, a, a whole bunch of other countries. Just based on, you know, nominal GDP, Russia, depending on, you know, what list you're looking at, but I guess, you know, the IMF, uh, Russia doesn't even break the top 10. You have U.S., China, Japan, Germany, U.K., France, India, Italy, Brazil, Canada, all above Russia in terms of nominal GDP. You know, by some estimates in recent years, the the GDP of Texas is bigger than that of Russia. Right. So if it's not economic, Russia is a, you know, very much resource commodity driven economy and specifically oil and, and to some degree gas. But they're not particularly an economic powerhouse by any stretch of the imagination. So, well, if not that, then you say, okay, well, militarily. Well, if you're going by nuclear weapons, then yes, absolutely. The U.S. and Russia, as legacy of the Cold War, are the two, you know, absolute nuclear powers by, you know, large degree. Uh, China would obviously be included there if you want to look. And that makes sense, too, because China has nuclear weapons. But yes, Russia makes sense there. But militarily beyond that... In terms of, you know, regular standing military, is that something that we, you know, are we really competing with them? If you look at, you know, Ukraine, Crimea, things like that, then maybe yes. If you're looking at the Baltics and and threats to NATO and NATO periphery countries, then yeah, Russia makes sense in that sense. But if you're looking at ideological, you know, and political kind of systems, I think China does make sense. And Russia makes sense to put in there in terms of authoritarian kind of, uh, you know, lack of respect for democracy. Uh, China is very much trying to put itself out there as this alternative framework for how to run your country and saying that, look, you know, our model is better than America because there's stability and, you know, there's no upheaval politically like you see in the U.S., etc. But I think, you know, again, these kind of there, there are other countries that are also involved there. And it also doesn't necessarily seem to match up with where a lot of our attention is taken up, right? How does that fit in terms of the Middle East? Like, how does great power competition explain Syria, etc.? So I think, you know, in defining it, you have a problem. And then I think you have in terms of what it actually describes is a problem, too. I, I guess to not, I don't mean to disagree too sharply, but I think it's pretty clear what we're talking about. We're talking about the two countries that pose the greatest threats to American interests, you know, full stop. Like with China, it is the great economic power it is a it is building a military force and an an arsenal that can keep us from maneuvering in asia especially east asia as much as we'd like to with russia a country that expands 11 time zones right that is opposes a threat to europe that is getting more involved in the middle east thwarting our own aims in syria for whatever aims we really had and in other middle eastern countries 
one that is playing a bigger role in, in Asia itself and in Central Asia. I mean, to get an idea of like where Russia is always involved, you can drive from North Korea to Finland only going through Russia. Right. Like it is just that massive. And so and on top of that, it's nuclear arsenal. So, yeah, its economy is bad. But anything that the U.S. is trying to do, like China and Russia have a way to mess with that. And so they are the two biggest rivals for whatever we're trying to achieve. Why not the EU and India? Well, like the EU is an ally and India is an ally uh, in, a, in a sense, right? And India is sort of the thing we're fighting over at this point, And it's why we're calling that region the Indo-Pacific now. And we don't want it to go into China's sphere. And the EU, like, yes, you know, we were worried about it out competing the United States. And I think as a bloc, it is still richer than America. But it has nowhere near the influence in terms of foreign policy, in terms of domestic policy, in terms of a whole bunch of things. So we see it as part of our block. So when we consider China and Russia, we fear that they are the two who are most trying to thwart American names, who most have the ability to like just demolish what we're trying to do around the world. And, uh, they, and it's, and it's not necessarily because of all the factors that you laid out, although you're totally right about all of it, but I just think it's a simple metric. It is what is America trying to achieve and who can best, you know, mess with that and it's china and russia no question right but that's that's the point though is that what are those interests and how are we defining that right because does russia pose a threat to europe and u.s interest there well again that depends on how you define u.s interests is it the u.s interest to defend states on the periphery of nato you know from russian incursion if the answer is yes then why right like why is that an american interest i think again you need to define that i don't mean you alex i mean the country needs to better define that right like saying that, that Russia poses a threat to Europe is a broad statement when Russia is also trying to, you know, build economic pipelines, <laughs> literal gas pipelines to Europe to be more integrated. There are a lot of economies, including Germany and Europe, that want to have a lot more economic and, uh, and you know, resource relationships with Russia for various reasons. Italy has a lot of connections with, with the Russian regime itself, right? So, like, again... You know, I think in terms of defining interests and, and who can thwart them, if you're looking at what the U.S. is trying to do around the world, that is, I think, again, is it democracy? Is it economic power? Like, I think there's still a problem with definitions. And if you are saying what the U.S. is trying to do in the region or, you know, in the around the world, I think countries like Iran potentially, I would say, arguably pose, you know, could you could argue. I'm not arguing that necessarily be more, you know, of a problem in terms of thwarting U.S. ambitions in the Middle East than Russia is in Western Europe, right? So again, I think it goes to, like, how you define it and meaning policymakers, not us. The the way of defining it, what are American interests? And are we actually stopping to think whether those interests are worth actually getting into a conflict with strong military and economic powers? I think that's part of the problem here. Well, look, there. I think there are two different ways. I alluded to this earlier in my sort of introduction for this half of the conversation, right? Two different ways to think about what great power competition as a phrase is referring to. One is great power competition as an organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy. Like we are going to reorient what we do as a country around the fact of competing with other great powers. That's sort of the operative definition that Alex's line of commentary a second ago was operating under. So the other way to think about it is as great power competition as an organizing analytic principle for understanding the way that the world is trending in the future, by which I mean contrasting it with a unipolar era 
uh, the U.S. in the 90s and to some extent the 2000s, where there was just like no peer competitor and the U.S. could do basically whatever it wanted uh, with little constraint in terms of getting involved in other countries' politics, launching wars of regime change, that sort of thing. But now in a, in a world of great power competition when there are a lot more countries that are – or at least a few more countries that are posing a more serious threat from a combination of capacity and interest, right? So it, Russia – probably could with all of its nuclear weapons have been a problem in the 90s. It wasn't as much uh, because of the nature of the Russian government. It was more inclined to cooperate with the United States than to run into conflict with it. Under Putin, that changed. With China, it's capacity, right? The Chinese state has gotten a lot more powerful. And uh, also, it's also interest, right? Much more interested in taking a conflictual stance towards the United States. And so we have a world in which there are many countries that are closer, if not peer competitors to the U.S., because no one is, a, is on the U.S.'s level yet, in, in overall power level, and thus limiting the options that the U.S. has, limiting its room for operating and forcing it to take into account other countries' preferences more. And those often get sort of run together, right? We talk about being in an era of great power competition. And it gets thought of as reorienting U.S. foreign policy towards Russia and China, but also the broader international environment. And keeping those two things separate conceptually, I think, is, is pretty important to having a cogent conversation about this, in part because when you take the analytic frame, the less like prescriptive, here's what we want the U.S. to be doing, and the more descriptive, what is the world going to look like, then you start to see that it's not just the U.S., Russia, and China acting on the world. It is lots of other countries becoming and, and regions becoming increasingly restive and more important. And you have people with their own interests and their own agendas, for example, Indian and European policymakers, who aren't just like slotted into one camp or the other, right? They aren't just pro-US or pro-China or pro-Russia, but it's a series of lower level decisions like letting Huawei set up your 5G network that can happen inside specific countries that shift you know, the balance of beneficiaries in any particular policy space in one country's direction or the other. And that can happen in Europe right now, even though Europe is broadly speaking aligned with American policy goals. So it's just, it's a lot more complicated, I think, than the Cold War era slotting people into uh, pro-Western or pro-Soviet camps and, and helping disentangle the different understandings of great power competition helps us realize the complexities of the current situation. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, let's just take Europe for a moment, right? And, and you could imagine the Cold War, at least Western Europe, was like, we're on America's side, we're against the Soviet Union. Of course, there's some little, you know, there's some historical anomalies there, but you know what I'm getting at? Like, that was the general break here. And if you talk to European diplomats or officials, they will say, yes, Russia bad, America's on the right side of this, China also bad, you know, we got to push back against Intel or whatever, and, and, and their technology companies. But as a block... The EU isn't really get heading there. In fact, they just sort of signed a China trade deal. They have they continue to bring in oil from Russia, as, as Jen was alluding to. It is not so clear cut. And there isn't really any countries coming along with the U.S. in this concept right now. Right. This isn't this is a purely American idea in the sense of like we're going to orient our government this way. No one else has truly come along with us at this moment other than there are nations that for myriad reasons say, oh, yeah, China isn't super trustworthy and we're worried about Russia. But just because they're worried about China and Russia does not mean they agree that they want to reorient their entire foreign policies and strategies towards competing with those countries with the U.S. leading the way. And so that if, if this is what the U.S. really wants, if that is the goal, 
then it's got a lot more work to do in, in that effort. If it wants to recruit EU countries, India, nations in Africa, nations in South America, wherever, in 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 service of, of in service of this great power competition, because America can't do this one alone. Uh, and so it doesn't surprise me that lacking sort of a, a global coherent uh, movement that you're seeing, at least in our domestic debate, this is what to do about great powers is falling along pretty uh, partisan lines. Generally speaking, you're seeing Republicans say, oh, this just means a massive buildup of our military because we got to defeat China. We've got to, uh, you know, have a stronger force presence in Eastern Europe. Also, we got to send more stuff to our European allies and our Asian allies. And then on the progressive liberal side or Democratic side, you're seeing, oh, what this means is a reinvigoration of the American economy. You're seeing them say that, oh, we need to invest in high speed rail and in infrastructure and education and technology and R&D in service of, well, China's eating our lunch, as Biden would say, on, you know, all, all those kinds of issues. And so it's become a bit of a pet project for everyone. I think that was perhaps inevitable. But there is no and I, I only mention this to say, like, there is no national coherent process here. Like there is no you know, movement in one direction as to what we're going to do on, on each of these on China, Russia and whatever. And there's also no coherent global movement. So it's precarious. And and I think it's because of all the reasons we've discussed that the lack of definition, the lack of analytical rigor, the lack of understanding is this ideological, is it is it, you know, supposed to be sort of down to the minutiae? Um and maybe it's perhaps all of these things. But I worry that we're we're lacking a national conversation that I guess we're trying to start here about what this actually means and and what we are really setting ourselves up for, because it's way more than a war on terror. Something like this, if you're going to compete with China and Russia, which aren't going away anytime soon, then you're in for the long haul. So a couple thoughts here. One, you know, I think. And I don't know if you necessarily meant to say it this way, but when you said that, like, there there are no other countries like this is happening in the U.S. that is framing it this way, I would say there's one in particular that's also framing it this way, which is China. Right. I, yes. I just meant like countries we were like trying to get on board. But yes, you're right. 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 But yeah, I, I assume that's what you meant. But I think it's important to actually point that out that, you know, China, I was there a couple of years ago, you know, doing a lot of reporting and, and talking to people, including in the Chinese foreign ministry and spent, you know, a couple of weeks there talking to people in academia and the media and et cetera, et cetera, industry. And over and over and over and over, I kept hearing this, well, allusions to or direct citation of the Thucydides trap, which uh, is basically a concept that was popularized by Graham Allison, IR theorist, basically based on Sparta. Anyway, uh, <laughs> how far into Thucydides do I need to get? Uh, that's uh, we're we're good. We get it. Yeah, basically, it's it's this bit of term, this concept of basically describing that there's a higher likelihood of of war. There's a, a tendency towards war when an emerging or rising power is threatening to displace an existing great power. Uh, so you know, it was used to describe uh, the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta, but. It's being used now, especially in China, but in some degree as part of this kind of great power competition to describe the U.S. and China relations, with China being the rising power. And the the conversations that are being had in Beijing are very much saying, look, we don't, you know, the, the party line, quite literally, is it doesn't have to be a conflict. It doesn't have to be war. China is not threatening. We just, you know... We're rising, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have to go to war with the United States. That is the party line. But again, that doesn't actually necessarily 
you know, imitate reality or, or reflect reality when it comes to China military buildup, China's efforts to spread its influence economically, diplomatically, etc. So I think it's important to understand that China is also very much looking at its position in the world, very specifically vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and as a challenging power. The other thing I, I want to note here is, you know, I think there are benefits and drawbacks to this framework. I think the benefits uh, are kind of related to what Alex was talking about. Like if this framework in the U.S. causes America to, you know, light a fire under us and say, we need to really reinvest in infrastructure, in, you know, academia, in, you know, being on the front lines of, of green energy technology, things like that. I think that's a positive benefit, I think, both for the U.S. economy and potentially for the world in terms of green energy and things like that. Also, if it means that we need to push, you know, for human rights <laughs> respect and, you know, encourage democracy, things like that. I think that's a net benefit for the world. I think the drawback, there are many. And one goes back to what we were talking about in the first half of the show, which is when we were talking about Africa, we were talking about the U.S. competing with China in Africa. At no point were we talking about, and that's because of the framework here, at no point were we talking about what African countries themselves would like to do with respect to China or the U.S. or someone else, right? It may not be in the U.S. interests for country X, I just pick one, you know, to become closer integrated with Chinese economics. But if the leaders of that country and the citizens of that country think that it's in their best economic interest to do so, who the hell are we to say that they can't and they should, right? And so I think the problem with this framework is that it, you know, one of the drawbacks is that it it goes back to that Cold War paradigm of treating the entire rest of the world as essentially a battleground for proxy fights rather than independent actors that have their own say and, you know, and and will have their own say and should be able to make their own decisions. So I think that's it's kind of the challenge. I think, again, I think there are good parts and bad parts about this framework, but I think it's important to be aware of some of the drawbacks. Yeah, I think there's a uh... Another important thing to add here on that note from a recent essay in Foreign Affairs by Dan Nexon, who's a professor at Georgetown, a very, very smart guy. I like him a lot. Hi, Dan. We went to the same high school. Um, but uh, Dan, Dan's essay is is real good. Um, I encourage you to read it. It's titled a Great Against Great Power Competition. There are, there are a lot of points, I think, in the essay that have informed our conversation going forward. We all read it beforehand and, and discussed it a little bit. But one point that is particularly sharp are, are two ways in which the competition framework can lead people astray that I think fits into what Jen was just saying. The first is that obsessive focus on competition as a, a objective, like of just like winning qua winning rather than thinking about what competing in a specific sector gets you can lead you to make very bad decisions. This is very evident during the Cold War when the United States got involved in conflicts like Vietnam because it felt like it couldn't leave the region to the communists for whatever reason. Of course, there was no greater strategic loss after the communists did, in fact, take over Vietnam to the United States and hundreds of thousands of people died, including tens of thousands of Americans for virtually no strategic benefit to the United States. This was obviously catastrophic. Uh, so just thinking about competition in terms of we have to win everywhere can lead policymakers astray. The second point, relatedly, is that it can often distract from areas in which competition can yield to cooperation. That is to say, states that have an overall competitive relationship can uh, work on that and, and compartmentalize it while working together on issues of mutual concern. Again, there are some Cold War examples and precedents that are useful here, like 
arms control agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union. But today we have similarly really important problems. Dan highlights them, climate change being at the top of the agenda. There's a reason why when you hear about the Biden administration's foreign policy, there's this constant conversation about tension in our China policy between strategic competition and the immense need for U.S.-China cooperation over reducing dependence on fossil fuels and increasing production of renewables, because that's in everybody's interests, right? Very arguably Russia benefits from climate change, but that's neither here nor there in this particular conversation. And they certainly nobody benefits from runaway climate change when it gets really bad, right? It's just generally a shared human interest to prevent our climate from becoming unlivable. And how you cooperate on that in a world where you're emphasizing great power competition as like the lodestar of foreign policy seems harder. So it may be the case that there are increased areas of competition between the United States and other large and powerful nations. But making everything about that fact seems like a way to distract oneself from solving some of the problems in which competition is not uh, the actual issue at stake, but rather shared interests and a need to coordinate on shared interests are. I think there's one very uh, clear example of this that just helps put a really fine point on that, and that is pandemics. So if you look at U.S.-China competition, uh, a huge part of the reason, I would say, I think it's pretty clear that China tried really hard to cover up the early days of the pandemic is that it didn't want to look like it was having a pandemic, right? Like it didn't want to look like there was this huge infectious disease that was coming out for various reasons. And then when it did come out and, you know, China very quickly tried to, uh, you know, keep WHO, you know, World Health Organization investigators out. Even now they just came back. They were finally allowed to go in, but there's a lot of questions about how much access they were given, right? This this unifying kind of concept of China having to compete with the U.S. and vice versa has caused very literal challenges to our ability to address the pandemic and prevent future ones, right? It's important for scientists to figure out where this came from, to have real data and real understanding, to hopefully try to prevent this from happening again in the future. And yet, because of this competition, you know, we are seeing this kind of broader uh, fight and it's really complicating things on a very specific level. So I think that alone is a really important example of how problematic purely competition as a framework can be when it comes to dealing with things that are very much global problems that need to be addressed collectively. I, just briefly, I, I disagree a little bit just because I think it has the reason China hid what it did is more because of like the Chinese system than it is competition with America. Uh, I do agree the competition didn't form a little bit just because if China looked bad, then it would be losing the competition, um, whatever, however you define it. But like that to me seems more like a Xi Jinping like government corruption authoritarian issue more than a fight with America. But that said, I think your larger point stands, which is if the U.S. and China can't find at least ways to work while, you know, dealing with all the other things that they're competing on, then the world's in a worse spot. Climate change, pandemics, economics, a whole bunch of other issues. So, yeah, that's that's at least I'm encouraged, as, as Zach and, and Jen have alluded to, that Biden's administration at least is finding some space for that, even though it's mostly just climate at this point, um, whereas Trump did not. We're at least moving in a more, like, balanced direction. But we're still very much, like, if, if this were a pendulum on the competition side, and that's what worries me as we head down the line. 
I mean, China literally launched like a trade war with Australia because Australia called for an international investigation into the origins of the pandemic. I think that's very much about China's image on the world stage and competition. But I, I take your point that, yeah, parts of, of the way the Chinese uh, system is set up also does encourage uh, that kind of behavior. Fair enough. So uh, I think we're going to leave the conversation there. As you can see, it's just so it's such a rich vein of ore of conversational and intellectual ore. Uh, we'd love to mine it again if you liked this uh, more sort of more conceptual frame rather than something uh, you know more directly on the news. Send us an email about it. We'd love to hear from listeners. We 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 just you know we love talking to you guys and we love having a dialogue. Um, I want to thank our producer Sophie Lalonde for all of her tremendous work getting this episode together and I. I want to encourage you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And our email address is worldly at vox.com. Also a very important thing. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. 